Chapter 1. Living or Dead You hath he quickened who were dead. Ephesians 2, 1. Listen to these words and think about them carefully. Search your own heart and don't lay down this book without asking yourself some sincere questions. I come to you today with one simple question. Are you among the living or among the dead? Listen to me while I try to help you come to an answer. Give me your attention while I unfold this matter and show you what God has said about it in the Scriptures. If I say hard things, it's not because I don't love you. I write as I do because I desire your salvation. He is your best friend who tells you the most truth, is he not? We are dead. First, then, let me tell you what we all are by nature. We are dead. Dead is a strong word, but I did not coin it or invent it. I did not choose it. The Holy Spirit told Paul to write it down about the Ephesians, You hath he quickened who were dead. The Lord Jesus Christ made use of it in the parable of the prodigal son. This my son was dead and is alive again. This thy brother was dead and is alive again. Luke 15, 24, 32. You can read it also in the letter to the Corinthians. One died for all, then were all dead. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. How can mortals be wiser than the Scriptures? I must be careful to speak what I find in the Bible, nothing less and nothing more. Dead is an awful idea, and one that we are most unwilling to accept. We don't like to admit the whole extent of our soul's disease. We shut our eyes to the real amount of our danger. Many will allow me to say that naturally, most people are not quite what they ought to be. They are thoughtless, they are unsteady, they are unconcerned, they are wild, and they are not serious enough. But dead? Oh, no, I must not mention it. It's going too far to say that. The idea is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. My dear listener, what we like in religion is of very little consequence. The only question that matters is, what is written? What does the Lord say? God's thoughts are not man's thoughts, Isaiah 55, 8, and God's words are not man's words. God says of all living persons who are not decided Christians, whether they have a high status or a low status, are rich or poor, or old or young, they are dead. In this, as in everything else, God's words are right. Nothing could be said more correctly, more accurately, more faithfully, or more truly. Stay with me a little while and let me reason this out with you. What would you have said if you'd seen Joseph weeping over his father Jacob? Scripture, and Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. Genesis 50, 1. But there was no reply to his affection. Everything about that aged countenance was unmoved, silent, and still. No doubt you would have guessed the reason. Jacob was dead. What would you have said if you had heard the Levite speaking to his wife when he found her lying before the door in Gibeah? Up, he said, and let us be going. But none answered. Judges 19, 28. His words were thrown away. There she lay, 
motionless, stiff, and cold. You know the cause. She was dead. What would you have thought if you had seen the Amalekite stripping Saul of his royal ornaments on Mount Gilboa? He took from him the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm. 2 Samuel 1.10. There was no resistance. Not a muscle moved in that proud face. Not a finger was raised to prevent him. Why? Saul was dead. What would you have thought if you had encountered the widow's son at the gate of Nain, lying in a coffin, wrapped with grave clothes, followed by his weeping mother, and carried slowly toward the tomb? Luke 7, 12. Without a doubt, it would have been all clear to you. It would have needed no explanation. The young man was dead. Now, this is the condition of every person by nature in the matter of their souls. This is the spiritual state of the vast majority of people around us. God calls to them continually, by mercies, by afflictions, by ministers, and by His Word. But they do not hear His voice. The Lord Jesus Christ mourns over them, pleads with them, sends them gracious invitations, and knocks at the door of their hearts, but they don't pay any attention to it. The precious jewel that is the crown and glory of their being, their immortal soul, is being seized, plundered, and taken away, yet they are utterly unconcerned. The devil is carrying them away, day after day, along the broad road that leads to destruction, and they allow him to make them his captives without a struggle. This is going on everywhere, all around you, among all classes, through the length and breadth of the land. You know it in your own conscience as you listen to this book. You must be aware of it. You cannot deny it. And nothing can be more perfectly true than that which God says we are all, by nature, spiritually dead. When our hearts are cold and unconcerned about religion, when our hands are never employed in doing God's work, when our feet are not familiar with God's ways, when our tongues are seldom or never used in prayer and praise, when our ears are deaf to the voice of Christ in the gospel, when our eyes are blind to the beauty of the kingdom of heaven, and when our minds are full of the world and have no room for spiritual things, when these signs are found in us, the word of the Bible is the right word to use, and that word is dead. We may not like this. We may shut our eyes both to facts in the world and texts in the Word. But God's truth must be spoken, and to keep it back does active harm. Truth must be spoken, however condemning it may be. As long as we don't serve God with body, soul, and spirit, we are not really alive. As long as we put the first things last and the last things first, bury our talents like an unprofitable servant, and bring the Lord no revenue of honor, in God's sight we are dead. We are not filling the place in creation for which we were intended. We are not using our powers and faculties as God meant them to be used. The poet's words are factually true. He lives who lives to God alone, and all are dead beside. Footnote. William Cowper, 1731-1800, was an English poet and hymn writer. These lines are from the poem On a Similar Occasion for the year 1793. This is the true explanation of sin not felt, sermons not believed, good advice not followed, the gospel not embraced, the world not forsaken, 
the cross not taken up, self-will not subdued, evil habits not laid aside, the Bible seldom read, and the knee never bent in prayer. Why are these things everywhere? The answer is simple. People are dead. This is the real explanation for all the excuses so many make for neglecting religion. Some have no learning, and some have no time. Some are burdened with business, and some with poverty. Some have difficulties in their own families, and some in their own health. Some have peculiar obstacles in their calling, which others, we are told, cannot understand, and others have peculiar drawbacks at home, which they wait to have removed. But God has a shorter word in the Bible that describes all these people at once. He says they are dead. This is the explanation for many things that wring a faithful minister's heart. Many around him never attend a place of worship at all. Many attend so irregularly that it is clear they think it is of no importance. Many attend once on a Sunday who might just as easily attend twice. Many never come to the Lord's table and never appear at a weekday service of any kind. And why is all this? Often, far too often, there's only one answer. They are dead. Dear listener, all professing Christians should examine themselves and test their own state. It's not in churchyards alone where the dead are found. There are too many inside our churches, too many close to our pulpits, and too many in the pews. The land is like the valley in Ezekiel's vision, full of bones, and those bones are very dry. There are dead souls in all our parishes, and dead souls in all our streets. There's hardly a family in which all live for God. There's hardly a house in which there is not someone dead. Oh, look at home! Be certain of yourself. Observe, too, how sad is the condition of all who have gone through no spiritual change, whose hearts are still the same as the day they were born. There is a mountain of division between them and heaven. They have yet to pass from death to life. Oh, if they could see and know their danger! A fearful sign of spiritual death is that, like natural death, it is not felt. We lay our beloved ones tenderly and gently in their final beds, but they feel nothing of what we do. The dead, says the wise man, know not anything. Ecclesiastes 9 5. This is also the case with dead souls. Notice what reason ministers have to be anxious about their congregations. We feel that time is short and life is uncertain. We know that spiritual death is the high road that leads to eternal death. We fear lest any of those we preach to should die in their sins unprepared, unrenewed, impenitent, and unchanged. Oh, don't be surprised if we often speak strongly and plead with you passionately. We dare not give you flattering titles, amuse you with trivial matters, say smooth things, and cry, Peace, peace, when life and death are at stake, and nothing less. 1 Thessalonians 5 3. The plague is among you. We feel that we stand between the living and the dead. We must and will speak very plainly. If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? 1 Corinthians 14 8. We must be made alive. Second, 
Let me tell you what every person who wants to be saved needs. He needs to be aroused and made alive. Life is the mightiest of all possessions. From death to life is the greatest of all changes, and no change short of this will ever prepare a soul for heaven. It's not a little mending and alteration, a little cleansing and purifying, a little painting and patching, a little turning over a new leaf and putting on a new outside that is needed. It is the bringing in of something altogether new, the planting within us of a new nature, a new being, a new principle, and a new heart. This alone, and nothing less than this, will ever meet the needs of man's soul. To hew a block of marble from the quarry, and carve it into a noble statue, to break up a waste wilderness and turn it into a garden of flowers, to melt a lump of ironstone and forge it into watch springs, all these are mighty changes. Yet they all come short of the change that every child of Adam requires, for they are merely the same thing in a new form, the same substance in a new shape. We require the grafting in of that which we did not have before. We need a change as great as a resurrection from the dead. We must become new creatures. Old things must pass away, and all things must become new. We must be born again, born from above, born of God. The natural birth is not one bit more necessary to the life of the body than the spiritual birth is to the life of the soul. I know this is a hard saying. I know the children of this world don't like to hear that they must be born again. It pricks their consciences. It makes them feel they are further off from heaven than they are willing to admit. It seems like a narrow door that they have not yet stooped to enter, and they would like to make the door wider or climb in some other way. But I dare not give way in this matter. I will not foster a delusion and tell people they only need to repent a little and stir up a gift they have within them in order to become real Christians. I dare not use any other language than that of the Bible. And I say in the words that are written for our learning, we all need to be born again, we are all naturally dead, and we must be made alive. If you had seen Manasseh, king of Judah, at one time filling Jerusalem with idols, and murdering his children in honor of false gods, and at another time purifying the temple, putting down idolatry, and living a godly life. If you had seen Zacchaeus, the publican of Jericho, at one time cheating, plundering, and coveting, and at another time following Christ and giving half his goods to the poor. If you had seen the servants of Nero's household, at one time conforming to their master's debauched ways, and at another time being of one heart and mind with the Apostle Paul? If you had seen the ancient father Augustine at one time living in open neglect of the seventh commandment, and at another time walking closely with God? If you had seen our own reformer Latimer at one time preaching earnestly against the truth as it is in Jesus, and at another time spending and being spent even to death in its cause? If you had seen the New Zealanders or the Hindus of Tinivelli, India, at one time bloodthirsty, immoral, and sunk in abominable superstitions, and at another time holy, pure, and believing Christians, if you had seen all these wonderful changes, or any one of them, I ask you, what would you have said? Would you have been content to call them nothing more than amendments and alterations? 
Would you have been satisfied with saying that Augustine had reformed his ways and Latimer turned over a new leaf? If you had said no more than this, the very stones would have cried out. I tell you, in all these cases there was nothing less than a new birth, a resurrection of human nature, a reviving of the dead. These are the right words to use. All other language is weak, poor, beggarly, unscriptural, and short of the truth. Now, I will not shrink from plainly saying we all need the same kind of change if we are to be saved. The difference between us and any of those I've just named is far less than it appears. Take off the outward crust, and you will find the same nature beneath, in us and them, an evil nature requiring a complete change. The face of the earth is very different in different climates, but the heart of the earth, I am told, is the same everywhere. Go where you will, from one end to the other, and you will always find the granite rock beneath your feet if you only bore down deep enough. And it's the same with our hearts. Our customs and our colors, our ways and our laws, may be utterly different, but the inner man is always the same. Our hearts are all alike at the bottom, all stony, all hard, all ungodly, all needing to be thoroughly renewed. The Englishman and the New Zealander stand on the same level in this matter. Both are naturally dead, and both need to be made alive. Both are children of the same father Adam, who fell by sin, and both need to be born again and made children of God. Whatever part of the globe we live in, our eyes need to be opened. Naturally, we never see our sinfulness, guilt, and danger. Whatever nation we belong to, our understandings need to be enlightened. Naturally, we know little or nothing of the plan of salvation. Like the builders of the Tower of Babel, we think to get to heaven our own way. No matter what church we may belong to, our wills need to be bent in the right direction. Naturally, we would never choose the things that are for our peace. We would never come to Christ. Whatever our rank is in life, our affections need to be turned to things above. Naturally, we only set them on things below earthly, sensual, short-lived, and vain. Pride must give place to humility, self-righteousness to self-abasement, carelessness to seriousness, worldliness to holiness, unbelief to faith. Satan's dominion must be put down within us and the kingdom of God set up. Self must be crucified and Christ must reign. Until these things come to pass, we are as dead as stones. When these things begin to take place, and not until then, we are alive. This sounds like foolishness to some. I tell you that many people could stand up today and testify that it is true. Many could tell you that they know it all by experience and that they do indeed feel themselves new creations. They love the things that they once hated and hate the things that they once loved. They have new habits, new companions, new ways, new tastes, new feelings, new opinions, new sorrows, new joys, new anxieties, new pleasures, new hopes, and new fears. In short, the whole bias and current of their being is changed. Ask their nearest relatives and friends, and they will bear witness to it. Whether they liked it or not, they would be obliged to confess they are no longer the same. Many could tell you, 
that once they didn't think themselves such great sinners. At any rate, they imagined they were no worse than others. Now they would say, with the Apostle Paul, they feel themselves the chief of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 Once they did not consider their hearts bad. They might have their faults and be led away by bad company and temptations, but deep down they had good hearts. Now they each would tell you, they know no heart so bad as their own. They find it deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9. Once they didn't suppose it was a very hard matter to get to heaven. They thought they only had to repent, say a few prayers, and do what they could, and Christ would make up for what was missing. Now they believe the way is narrow, and few find it. They are convinced they could never have made their own peace with God. They are persuaded that nothing but the blood of Christ could wash away their sins. Their only hope is to be justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Once they could see no beauty or excellence in the Lord Jesus Christ. They couldn't understand ministers speaking so much about Him. Now they would tell you He is the pearl above all price, the chief among ten thousand, their Redeemer, their Advocate, their Priest, their King, their Physician, their Shepherd, their all. Once they thought lightly about sin. They could not see the necessity of being so particular about it. They could not think their words and thoughts and actions were of such importance and required such watchfulness. Now they would tell you sin is an abominable thing that they hate. It's the sorrow and burden of their lives. They long to be more holy. They can enter thoroughly into Whitefield's desire, I want to go where I will neither sin myself nor see others sin any more. Footnote George Whitefield, 1714 1770, was an English Anglican pastor and evangelist, popular in both Great Britain and the United States. Once they found no pleasure in means of grace, the Bible was neglected. Their prayers, if they had any, were merely ritual. Sermons were a weariness and often sent them to sleep. Now all is changed. These things are the food, the comfort, and the delight of their souls. Once they disliked earnest Christians. They shunned them as melancholy, low-spirited, and weak people. Now those Christians are the excellent ones of the earth. They cannot see them too much. They are never so happy as they are in their company. They feel that if all men and women were saints, it would be heaven on earth. Once they cared only for this world, its pleasures, its business, its occupations, and its rewards. Now they look on it as an empty, unsatisfying place, an inn, a lodging, and a school for the life to come. Their treasure is in heaven. Their home is beyond the grave. I ask you once more, what is all this but a new life? Such a change as I have described is no vision or fantasy. It is a real, actual thing that many in this world have known or felt. It's not a picture of my own imagining. It is a true thing which many could find at this moment close to their own home. But wherever this change takes place, there you see the thing of which I am speaking. You see the person made alive, a new man, a new creature, a soul born again. I wish that changes such as these were more common. 
I wish there were not multitudes of whom we must say sadly that they know nothing about the matter at all. But whether it is common or not, this is the kind of change we all need. I don't believe that all must have exactly the same experience. I fully allow that the change is different in degree, extent, and intensity in different persons. Grace may be weak and yet true. Life may be feeble and yet real. But I do confidently affirm that we must all go through something of this kind if we ever wish to be saved. Until this sort of change has taken place, there is no life in us at all. We may be living members of the church, but we are dead Christians. Every man or woman who listens to this book, take this home to your own conscience and look at it well. Sometime between the cradle and the grave, all who want to be saved must be made alive. The words that good old Berridge had graven on his tombstone are faithful and true. Reader, art thou born again? No salvation without a new birth. Footnote John Berridge, 1716 to 1793, the vicar of Everton, England, was a plain spoken but highly effective preacher of the gospel. Look what an amazing gulf there is between the Christian in name and form and the Christian in deed and truth. It's not the difference of one being a little better and the other a little worse than his neighbor. It is the difference between a state of life and a state of death. The most common blade of grass that grows on a highland mountain is a more noble object than the fairest flower ever formed from wax, for it has that which no science of man can impart it has life. The most splendid marble statue in Greece or Italy is nothing next to even a poor, sickly child that is able to crawl over the cottage floor, for even with all its beauty, the marble statue is dead. And the weakest member of the family of Christ is far higher and more precious in God's eyes than the most gifted man of the world. The one lives for God and will live forever. The other, with all his intellect, is still dead in sins. You who have passed from death to life, you have reason indeed to be thankful. Remember what you once were by nature, dead. Think what you are now by grace, alive. Look at the dry bones thrown up from the graves. Such were you. Who has changed you? Go and fall low before the footstool of your God. Bless Him for His grace, His free, distinguishing grace. Say to him often, Who am I, Lord, that you have brought me here? Why me? Why have you been merciful to me? God can make the dead alive. Let me tell you now in what way alone this reviving can be brought about, by what means a dead soul can be made alive. If I did not tell you this, it would be cruel to write what I have written. It would be leading you into a dreary wilderness and then leaving you without bread and water. It would be like marching you down to the Red Sea and then asking you to walk over it. It would be like commanding you to make bricks like Pharaoh and yet refusing to provide you with straw. It would be like tying your hands and feet and then asking you to fight a good fight and run as to obtain the prize. 1 Corinthians 9.24 I will not do so. I will not leave you until I have pointed out the wicked gate toward which you must run. By God's help, I will set before you the full provision there is made for dead souls. Listen to me a little longer, 
and I will once more show you what is written in the Scripture of Truth. One thing is very clear. We cannot work this great change ourselves. It is not in us. We have no strength or power to do it. We may change our sins, but we cannot change our hearts. We may take up a new way, but not a new nature. We may make considerable reforms and alterations. We may lay aside many outward bad habits and begin many outward duties, but we cannot create a new principle within us. We cannot bring something out of nothing. The Ethiopian cannot change his skin, nor the leopard his spots. Jeremiah 13:23. Neither can we put life into our own souls. Another thing is equally clear. No man can do it for us. Ministers may preach to you, pray with you, receive you at the receptacle in baptism, admit you at the Lord's table, and give you the bread and wine, but they cannot grant spiritual life. They may bring in regularity in the place of disorder, and outward decency in the place of open sin, but they cannot go below the surface. They cannot reach your hearts. Paul may plant, and Apollos may water, but God alone can give the increase. 1 Corinthians 3, 6. Who then can make a dead soul alive? No one can except God. Only he who breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life can ever make a dead sinner a living Christian. Only he who formed the world out of nothing in the day of creation can make a man a new creature. Only he who said, Let there be light, and there was light, Genesis 1, 3, can cause spiritual light to shine into man's heart. Only he who formed man out of the dust and gave life to his body can ever give life to his soul. His is the special office to do it by his Spirit, and his also is the power. The glorious gospel contains provisions for your spiritual life as well as your eternal life. The dead must come to Christ, and He will give them life as well as peace. He is able to do everything that sinners need. He cleanses them by His blood, and He makes them alive by His Spirit. The Lord Jesus is a complete Savior. That mighty living head has no dead members. His people are not only justified and pardoned, but also made alive together with Him and made partakers of His resurrection. The Spirit joins the sinner to Him and raises him by that union from death to life. In Him the sinner lives after he has believed. The spring of all his vitality is the union between Christ and his soul, which the Spirit begins and keeps up. Christ is the appointed fountain of all spiritual life, and the Holy Spirit is the appointed agent who conveys that life to our souls. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ if you want to have life. He will not cast you out. He has gifts even for the rebellious. The moment the dead man touched the body of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. 2 Kings 13:21. The moment you touch the Lord Jesus with the hand of faith, you are alive to God as well as forgiven of all trespasses. Come and your soul will live. I never despair of anyone becoming a decided Christian, no matter what kind of person he may have been in days past. I know how great the change is from death to life. I know the mountains of division that seem to stand between some of you and heaven. 
I know the hardness, the prejudices, the desperate sinfulness of the natural heart. But I remember that God the Father made the glorious world out of nothing. I remember that the voice of the Lord Jesus could reach Lazarus when he had been dead four days and call him even from the grave. I remember the amazing victories the Spirit of God has won in every nation under heaven. I remember all this and feel that I never need despair. Yes, the very person who now seems most utterly dead in sins may yet be raised to a new being and walk before God in newness of life. Why should it not be so? The Holy Spirit is a merciful and loving Spirit. He turns away from no repentant person, no matter how black his past vileness. There was nothing in the Corinthians that he should come down and make them alive. Paul reports of them that they were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. Such, he says, were some of you. Yet even them the Spirit made alive. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6 9 11. There was nothing in the Colossians that he should visit their hearts. Paul tells us that they walked in fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Colossians 3 5. Yet the Spirit also made them alive. He made them put off the old man with his deeds, and put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Colossians 3, 9-10. There was nothing in Mary Magdalene that the Spirit should make her soul alive. Once she had been possessed with seven devils. If the reports are true, there was a time when she had been a woman of proverbial vileness and iniquity. Yet the Spirit made even her a new creature, separated her from her sins, brought her to Christ, and made her last at the cross and first at the tomb. Never, never will the Spirit turn away from a soul because of its corruption. He never has done so, and He never will. It is to His glory that He has purified the minds of the most impure and made them temples for His own home. He may yet take the worst person who listens to this book and make him a vessel of grace. Why should it not be so? The Spirit is an almighty Spirit. He can change the stony heart into a heart of flesh. He can break the strongest bad habits like tinder before the fire. He can make the most difficult things seem easy, and the mightiest objections melt away like snow in spring. He can cut the bars of brass and throw the gates of prejudice wide open. He can fill up every valley and make every rough place smooth. He has done it often, and he can do it again. The Spirit can take a Jew, the bitterest enemy of Christianity, the fiercest persecutor of true believers, the strongest stickler for Pharisaical notions, the most prejudiced opposer of gospel doctrine, and turn that man into an earnest preacher of the very faith he once destroyed. He has done it already. He did it with the Apostle Paul. The Spirit can take a Roman Catholic monk, brought up in the midst of Catholic superstition, trained from his infancy to believe false doctrine and obey the Pope, steeped to the eyes in error, and make that man the clearest upholder of justification by faith the world ever saw. 
He has done it already. He did it with Martin Luther. The Spirit can take an English tinker without learning, patronage, or money, a man at one time notorious for nothing so much as blasphemy and swearing, and make that man write a religious book that will stand unrivaled and unequaled by any since the time of the apostles. He has done so already. He did it with John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. The Spirit can take a sailor drenched in worldliness and sin, a reprobate captain of a slave ship, and make that man a most successful minister of the gospel and a writer of letters that are a storehouse of experienced religion and of hymns that are known and sung wherever English is spoken. He has done it already. He did it with John Newton. All this the Spirit has done, and much more. And the arm of the Spirit has not been shortened. His power has not decayed. As the Lord Jesus Christ is, so also is the Spirit, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still doing wonders, and will to the very end. Once more, then, I say, I never despair of anyone's soul being made alive. I would if it depended on man himself. Some seem so hardened that I would have no hope. I would have no hope if it depended on the work of ministers. The very best of us are poor, weak creatures. But I cannot despair when I remember that God the Spirit is the agent who conveys life to the soul. For I know and am persuaded that with Him nothing is impossible. Luke 1.37 I would not be surprised to hear, even in this life, that the hardest man I ever met had become softened, and the proudest had taken his place at the feet of Jesus as a weaned child. I will not be surprised to meet many on the right hand in the day of judgment whom I left travelling in the broad way when I died. I won't flinch and say, What? You? Here? I will only remind them, Didn't I say when I was still among you that nothing is impossible with him who awakens the dead? Do you desire to help the Church of Christ? Then pray for a great outpouring of the Spirit. He alone can give edge to sermons, value to advice, power to rebukes, and can cast down the high walls of sinful hearts. It's not better preaching and finer writing that's needed in this day, but more of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Do you feel the slightest drawing toward God, the smallest concern about your immortal soul? Then flee to that open fountain of living waters, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. John 7:39. Begin at once to pray for the Holy Spirit. Don't think you are closed off and cut off from hope. The Holy Spirit is promised to those who ask Him. His very name is the Spirit of promise and the Spirit of life. Give Him no rest until He comes down and gives you a new heart. Cry fiercely to the Lord. Say to Him, Bless me, bless me, and make me alive. And now let me conclude with a few words of special application. I have told you what I believe to be the truth, as it is in Jesus. Let me try, by God's blessing, to bring it home to your heart. First, let me put this question to every person who listens to this book Are you living or are you dead? Allow me, as an ambassador for Christ, to press the question on every conscience. There are only two ways to walk in the narrow and the broad. There will be just two companies in the day of judgment those on the right hand 
and those on the left. And there are two classes of people in the professing church of Christ, and to one of them you must belong. Where are you? What are you? Are you among the living or among the dead? I speak to you who listen to this book, and to no one else, not to your neighbor, but to you, not to Africans or New Zealanders, but to you. I don't ask if you are angels or if you have the mind of David or Paul, but I do ask if you have a well founded hope that you are new creatures in Christ Jesus. I do ask if you have reason to believe you have put off the old man and put on the new. If you are conscious of ever having gone through a real spiritual change of heart, if, in one word, you are dead or alive. Don't think to put me off by saying, I was admitted into the church by baptism, I received grace and the Spirit in that sacrament, I am alive. It won't benefit you. Paul himself says of the baptized widow who lives in pleasure, She is dead while she liveth. 1 Timothy 5 6. The Lord Jesus Christ himself tells the chief officer of the church in Sardis, Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Revelation 3 1. The life you talk of is nothing if it cannot be seen. Show it to me if I am to believe its existence. Grace is light, and light will always be discerned. Grace is salt, and salt will always be tasted. An indwelling of the Spirit that does not show itself by outward fruit, and a grace that men's eyes cannot discover, is to be viewed with the utmost suspicion. Believe me, if you have no other proof of spiritual life but your baptism, you are still a dead soul. Don't think to say to me, it's a question that cannot be decided, and it's presumptuous to give an opinion on such a matter. This is a vain refuge and a false humility. Spiritual life is not such a dim and doubtful thing as you seem to imagine. There are signs and evidences by which its presence may be discerned by those who know the Bible. We know, says John, that we have passed from death unto life. 1 John 3.14 The exact time and season of that passage may often be hidden from a person, but the fact and reality of it will seldom be entirely an uncertain thing. It was a true and beautiful saying of a Scottish girl to Whitefield when asked if her heart was changed. Something is changed. It might be the world, it might be my own heart, but there was a great change somewhere, I'm quite sure, for everything seems different from what it once did. Stop evading the question. Anoint your eyes with balm so that you may see. Are you dead or alive? Don't think to reply, I don't know. It is a matter of importance, and I hope to know sometime before I die. I mean to think about it when it is a more convenient time, but at present I don't know. You don't know. Heaven or hell is wrapped up in this question. An eternity of happiness or misery hinges upon your answer. You don't leave your worldly affairs so unsettled. You don't manage your earthly business so loosely. You look far ahead. You provide against every possible contingency. You insure life and property. Oh, why not deal in the same way with your immortal soul? You don't know. Yet all around you is uncertainty. Your body is fearfully and wonderfully made, but you are a poor, frail worm. 
your health is liable to be put out of order in a thousand ways. The next time the daisies bloom, it may be over your grave. All before you is dark. You don't know what a day may bring, much less a year. Oh, why not bring your soul's business to a point without delay? Begin the great business of self-examination. Don't rest until you know the length and breadth of your own state in God's sight. Backwardness in this matter is an evil sign. It springs from an uneasy conscience. It shows that the person thinks ill of his own situation. He feels like a dishonest tradesman, that his accounts will not stand up to questioning. He dreads the light. Listener, make sure. Take nothing for granted. Don't measure your condition by that of others. Bring everything to the measure of God's word. A mistake about your soul is a mistake for eternity. Surely, says Leighton, they that are not born again will one day wish they had never been born. Footnote Robert Leighton, 1611 1684, was a Scottish Archbishop of Glasgow known for trying to bring peace to quarreling factions of the church. Sit down today and think. Commune with your own heart and be still. Go to your own room and consider. Enter into your own closet or in some way contrive to be alone with God. Look the question fairly, fully, and honestly in the face. How does it touch you? Are you among the living or among the dead? Second, let me speak in full affection to those who are dead. What should I say to you? What can I say? What words of mine are likely to have any effect on your hearts? I will say that I mourn over your souls. I do most sincerely mourn. You may be unthinking and unconcerned. You may care little about what I'm saying. You may scarcely turn your ear over this, and after listening to it, scorn it and return to the world. But you cannot prevent my feeling for you, however little you may feel for yourselves. Do I mourn when I see young people sapping the foundation of their bodily health by indulging their lusts and passions, sowing bitterness for themselves in their old age? I will mourn much more over your souls. Do I mourn when I see people squandering away their inheritance and wasting their property on trifles and follies? I will mourn much more over your souls. Do I mourn when I hear of one drinking slow poisons because they are pleasant, as the Chinese take opium, speeding up the clock of his life as if it didn't go fast enough, inch by inch digging his own grave? I will mourn much more over your souls. I mourn to think of golden opportunities thrown away, of Christ rejected, of the blood of atonement trampled underfoot, of the Spirit resisted, the Bible neglected, heaven despised, and the world put in the place of God. I mourn to think of the present happiness you are missing, the peace and consolation you are thrusting away from you, the misery you are laying up in store for yourselves, and the bitter waking up that is yet to come. Yes, I must mourn. I can't help it. Others may think it's enough to mourn over dead bodies. For my part, I think there is far more cause to mourn over dead souls. The children of this world find fault with us for being so serious. Truly, when I look at the world, I marvel that we can ever smile at all. Listener, dear listener, 
why will you die? Are the sensations of sin so sweet and good that you cannot give them up? Is the world so satisfying that you cannot forsake it? Is the service of Satan so pleasant that you and he are never to be parted? Is heaven so poor a thing that it's not worth seeking? Is your soul of so little consequence that it's not worth a struggle to have it saved? Oh, turn before it's too late. God is not willing that you should perish. 2 Peter 3 9. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. Ezekiel 18 32. Jesus loves you and grieves to see your foolishness. He wept over wicked Jerusalem, saying, How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Matthew 23:37. If you are lost, your blood will be on your own head. Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Ephesians 5:14. Believe me, true repentance is that one step that no man ever regretted. Thousands have said at the end of their lives, I have served God too little. No child of Adam ever said as he left this world that he had cared for his soul too much. The way of life is a narrow path, but the footsteps in it are all in one direction. Not one has ever come back and said it was a delusion. The way of the world is a broad way, but millions upon millions have forsaken it and testified that it was a way of sorrow. Oh, may this year be a year of life to your soul. May the Spirit come down upon your heart and make you a new person. I ask it of the Lord as the prophet did of old. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. Ezekiel 37, 9. Third, let me speak to those who are living. Are you indeed alive unto God? Can you say with truth, I was dead and am alive again? I was blind, but now I see? Then accept this word of exhortation and lean your heart toward wisdom. Are you alive? Then see that you prove it by your actions. Be a consistent witness. Let your words, works, ways, and attitudes all tell the same story. Don't let your life be a poor, sluggish life, like that of a tortoise or a sloth. Instead, let it be an energetic, compassionate life, like that of a deer or a bird. Let your grace shine out from all the windows of your conversation so that those who live near you may see that the Spirit is abiding in your heart. Don't let your light be a dim, flickering, uncertain flame, but let it burn steadily like the eternal fire on the altar and never become low. Let the savor of your religion, like Mary's precious ointment, fill all the houses where you live. Be a letter of Christ so clearly written and penned in such large, bold characters that those who run may read it. 2 Corinthians 3 2. Let your Christianity be so unmistakable, your eye so clear, your heart so whole, and your walk so straightforward that all who see you may have no doubt about whose you are and whom you serve. If we are made alive by the Spirit, no one ought to be able to doubt it. Our conversation should declare plainly that we seek a better country, a heavenly one. It ought not to be necessary to tell people, as in the case of a badly painted picture, 
this is a Christian, we ought not to be so sluggish and still that people will be forced to come close, look hard, and say, Is he dead or alive? Are you alive? Then see that you prove it by your growth. Let the great change within become every year more evident. Let your light be an increasing light, not like Joshua's son in the valley of Ajalon, standing still, nor Hezekiah's son going back, but ever shining more and more to the very end of your days. Let the image of your Lord, in whom you are renewed, grow clearer and sharper every month. Don't let it be like the image and superscription on a coin that is more indistinct and defaced the longer it is used. Instead, let it become more plain the older it is, and let the likeness of your King stand out more fully. I have no confidence in a standing still religion. I don't think Christians were meant to be like animals, to grow to a certain age and then stop growing. I believe they were meant to be like trees, and increase more and more in strength and vigor all their days. Remember the words of the Apostle Peter, Add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. 2 Peter 1, 5-7. This is the way to be a useful Christian. People will believe you are sincere when they see constant improvement and perhaps be drawn to go with you. This is one way to obtain comforting assurance. Scripture, So an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly. 2 Peter 1, 11. If you ever want to be useful and happy in your Christianity, let your motto be forward, forward, to your very last day. Listener, I speak to myself as well as to you. I say the spiritual life in Christians ought to be more evident. Our lamps need trimming, they should not burn so dimly. Our separation from the world should be more distinct, and our walk with God more decided. Too many of us are lingerers like Lot, Genesis 19:16, borderers like Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Numbers 32, or like the Jews in Ezra's time, Ezra 9, so mixed up with strangers that our spiritual pedigree cannot be made out. It should not be so. Let us be up and active. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If we really have life, let us make it known. The state of the world demands it. The latter days have fallen on us. The kingdoms of the earth are shaking, falling, crashing, and crumbling away. Isaiah 24. The glorious kingdom that will never be removed is drawing near. Hebrews 12:28. The king himself is close at hand. The children of this world are looking around to see what the saints are doing. God, in his wonderful providences, is calling to us, Who is on my side? Who? Surely we ought to be like Abraham, very ready with our answer, Here am I. Genesis 22:11. Ah, you may say, these are ancient things, these are brave words, we know it all, but we're weak and we have no power to think a good thought. We can do nothing, we must sit still. But listen to me, what is the cause of your weakness? Is it not because the fountain of life is used very little? 
Is it not because you are resting on old experiences and not daily gathering new manna, daily drawing new strength from Christ? He has left you the promise of the Comforter. He gives more grace, grace upon grace, to all who ask for it. James 4, 6. He came that you might have life, and have it more abundantly. John 10, 10. Open thy mouth wide, he says today, and I will fill it. Psalm 81, 10. If you want your spiritual life to be healthier and more vigorous, you must come more boldly to the throne of grace. You must give up this hesitation about taking the Lord at His own word. Undoubtedly, you are a poor sinner and nothing at all. The Lord knows it and has provided a supply of strength for you. But you don't draw from the reserves He has provided. You have not because you ask not. James 4, 2. The secret of your weakness is your little faith and little prayer. The fountain is unsealed, but you only sip a few drops. The bread of life is in front of you, yet you only eat a few crumbs. The treasury of heaven is open, but you only take a few pennies. O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Matthew 14, 31. Awake to know your privileges. Awake and sleep no longer. Don't tell me of spiritual hunger and thirst and poverty as long as the throne of grace is before you. Instead, say that you are proud and will not come to it as a poor sinner. Say you are lazy and will not go to any bother to get more. Cast aside the grave clothes of pride that still hang around you. Throw off that Egyptian garment of idleness that should not have been brought through the Red Sea. Away with that unbelief that ties and paralyzes your tongue. You are not restricted in God, but in yourself. Come boldly to the throne of grace, where the Father is ever waiting to give, and Jesus ever stands by Him to intercede. You may come boldly, all sinful as you are, if you come in the name of the great High Priest. If you come boldly and ask largely, you will have abundant answers. Mercy like a river, and grace and strength like a mighty stream. Come boldly, and you will have supplies exceeding all you can ask or think. Scripture Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. John 16, 24 I commend you to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. While you live, may you live unto the Lord. When you die, may you die the death of the righteous. And when the Lord Jesus comes, may you be found ready and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. 1 John 2, 28